Advent will kick off next week. Um, you may not know this. I didn't grow up in a church that was super traditional. In fact, I remember one Christmas where I was really looking forward to the Christmas uh, worship service, and the pastor said, uh, it was a Reformed Presbyterian church, and the pastor said, uh, we don't celebrate church tradition things. We celebrate Sunday. And so we preached, he preached on Second Chronicles that day, just like he had done the week before. Uh, if you know anything about church history, you know that in the Protestant Reformation, one of the things that came out about 500 years ago was this recommitment to the scriptures, and part of that was jettisoning anything that felt like kind of man-made human tradition things. Um, but when we do that, we jettison some of the teaching elements that God has provided in church history. Um, when we think about the prayers that he has given, when we think about the Book of Common Prayer, when we think about liturgy, practicing communion week in and week out, when we think about the different disciplines that we have, all of these things are tools that God has used to teach us the story of the gospel, to invite us to learn it, not just with our heads, but with our hands and our feet, with our, with our schedule, with, with the words that we read and that we recite together. One of the tools that the church has used is the church calendar. And again, in my church, we went the extreme way and had no calendar. Every week was just seven days at a time. But at All Souls, we follow along with the church calendar, and that includes the season of Advent kicking off next week. And these tools teach us something. Advent, the next few weeks, begins in the dark. And it's the beginning of the new church calendar year. And what an amazing lesson we learn at the beginning of the year, just like the beginning of our spiritual journeys, it begins in the darkness with hope in the promises that the light will break in. And it's a great thing that that Advent waiting in the dark doesn't last for months, but a few short weeks. And then we have the joy of Christmas and the hope that God has come to be with us. And since Advent is the beginning of the church year, that makes today sort of the church's New Year's Eve. And the church calendar is not just dotted with seasons, but also with festivals. One of my favorite festivals is October 9th every year, the Feast of St. Dennis. <laughs> the patron saint of France beheaded in the second century, uh, and we would celebrate in our home with Neapolitan ice cream. And then for months afterwards, because just the strawberry would be left in the carton. <laughs> My dad was born in Puerto Rico, and another holiday, another feast that we love, comes at the end of the 12 days of Christmas, it's the Feast of the Magi. And in my grandmother's house growing up in Puerto Rico, they would leave a box of grass underneath a chair for the Magi's weary animals to come and feast. A hundred years ago, a feast was established at the end of the church calendar year today called the Feast of Christ the King. It was almost 100 years ago after World War I had ravaged the world, throwing it into economic chaos, all kinds of devastation and loss of life. And Pope Pius XI looked around at the jockeying for position of the governments of the world and said the peace of God can never come through these human institutions, but will only come when we see Jesus Christ as our king and see that his kingdom has no end. So if you follow the church calendar, you begin in darkness, you come into hope, and at the end you celebrate the kingdom that will have no end. 
And that's our celebration this morning as well. We're going to look at Mark chapter 8 this morning to look at this King Jesus and see what kind of a king is he. Do we see his kingship and do we see his kingdom clearly? Julie, if you would come and read for us. Join me in prayer. Redeemer, ready us to be changed by the light of your word. Turn the soil of our hearts so that love and truth may take root and grow. Give us humility to receive the seeds of righteousness and faith that we may become hosts of your spirit and conduits of your grace and peace. Amen. A reading from Mark chapter eight um, through chapter nine, verse one. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his, his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. And then he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. In the passage we just heard, Jesus Ask the question, who do you say that I am? Which is another way of saying, do you see me? Do you see who I am? And more than that, do you see the kingdom? How clearly do you see it? Our passage here actually begins a few verses before that we didn't include with a strange story where Jesus heals a blind man by taking the man away from the crowd, spitting on the man's eyes and putting his hands over them. The strangeness of this story is not that Jesus takes this man who his friends had brought to be healed, had brought him into the excitement, into the crowd, the people who are following Jesus. It's not that Jesus takes him away to heal him. It's not 
that he heals him. Jesus has been doing that. It's not even that he spits on him, as weird as that is. The strangeness is that it doesn't appear that the miracle worked at first. After spitting on the man's eyes and covering them with his hands, Jesus asks him, do you see anything? And the man says, I see people, but they appear as trees walking around. So Jesus lays his hands on the man a second time, and at that time it says that the man's sight was fully restored, and he saw everything. Do you see anything? Do you see everything? Do you see life and the world in light of who Jesus is? And who do you say he is? Those are the questions that we're getting at in our passage. This short story here about the healing of the blind man uh, teaches us all kinds of lessons. The first is that the healing and transformation that God brings is often uncomfortable. The blind man who has spent his life being led around by others, vulnerable and helpless, dependent upon others, is brought by his friends on the word that someone is healing the sick and the hurt. And he is brought there in the security of his companionship only to be led away by the strange figure who he does not know. Away from the crowd, vulnerable, lonely, The uncomfortability extends in times to humiliation when God points out things in us that we would rather not see, when he shows our need and our brokenness and our pain in ways that we would rather not admit. The healing that God has for us can be incredibly uncomfortable. But if we have heard his promises and the testimony of who he is, if we have seen and experienced him, then maybe we will come, if not willingly, reluctantly, Come to him to be discomforted, disoriented, even humiliated and exposed, that we can experience his healing. The second thing that we see in this brief story is that sometimes healing takes time. At first, the man sees clearly. The darkness that has been visited upon him for years is now replaced with some amount of sight, but things are blurry. The Apostle Paul says that for us right now, we see things as though through a glass dimly. Our vision isn't always accurate. The reality of sin and brokenness, God might has healed in Jesus, but our experience of it and the fullness of the healing may be taking time. You might have come into the church and into faith because of God's promises, because of a great church experience, because of words from Scripture that convicted you, or another experience of hope and healing. But there is still even more healing and more clarity that God has in store for us. One of the biggest, uh, most impactful books for me has been Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And there's a guy in the book uh, who is a member of this church who said that he had never come to connect his faith in Jesus with his inner life. Discipleship of his emotions and his priorities and his value and his sense of will. He had never made that connection. So although he had been following Jesus for 20 years, instead of being a 20-year-old Christian, he was a one-year-old Christian 20 times over. We can't mistake proximity with the church or church experience for maturity. It may be that we see, but we don't yet see clearly. 
That's why God has given us the church and scripture to come back over and over as a corrective lens to help us see ourselves more clearly, to see him more clearly, to be transformed and healed. As Jesus asked the disciples, as as he asked this man, do you see anything? And then it says that the man sees everything as greater healing has come. This is the same question that Jesus poses to his disciples when he asks them, who do people say I am? And more directly, who do you say that I am? In the beginning of our passage, Jesus brings the disciples to a city called Caesarea Philippi. It was a city well known for its pantheon of gods. You could sort of serve any different god that you wanted there. And there was a newly built temple to Caesar Augustus there. There were all kinds of visions for gods and kings and kingdoms and all different versions of ways to live your life, ways to get the good life, who to serve and who to follow. And in this place, Jesus says, do you see anything? Do you see clearly? He asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And it's hard not to think about Steve Harvey and Family Feud saying, we surveyed a hundred people and who are the people saying Jesus is? Well, some said John the Baptist. Some Elijah, some others a prophet. Now, each one of these people was sort of a big deal. They had a following, they had success in ministry, they were by and large loved by the people around them, by God's people. They served uh, God's mission, proclaiming his truth, even to people in power. And the disciples affirmed to Jesus, certainly you've had some success, your reputation is growing, people see and value you in what God has sent you here to do. But Jesus asked them, is that all you see? Who do you say that I am? In a rare moment of clarity, Peter steps forward as the speaker of the house for the disciples. And he says, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, God's chosen king, the deliverer, the savior and Lord. And again, you can imagine, it's the number one answer. Ding, 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 ding. You won $10,000. Peter has this great moment of seeing Jesus as the king and the anointed one. Again, we see him in that way as well. God is the one that, uh, Jesus is the one that God has sent to come and to deliver us, to conquer in some ways, to bring life, to bring victory, to bring justice, to bring mercy. We see him in those ways. But Jesus asked, do you see clearly? They've gotten the right answer, but Jesus presses on to teach them more about himself. And he says this jarring and offensive piece. He says, the son of man must suffer many things. He will be a king rejected by the very people he has come to save. Even being killed and rising again from the grave three days later. And the passage says that he spoke this plainly and directly to them, to adjust their vision and their sight, to understand exactly what kind of king he would be. Not just do you see I'm a king, but do you understand the kind of king that I am? At best, this confused the disciples. And at worst, it offended them. You see, in the Old Testament, there was no connection between the Messiah, the king, and any sort of suffering, failure, persecution, loss. 
The only place was in the book of Isaiah, and that wasn't connected with the messianic prophecies of the anointed king who would come in victory. And so Peter and the disciples had no way of understanding the type of king that Jesus would be. So Peter, feeling confident because he got the number one answer, takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. And this word rebuke is not like just a small scolding like we may be used to. It's the same force of word where Jesus rebukes demons, casting them out from others. And so there's with force that Peter pulls him aside and says, that is not the way. Peter's outraged. That doesn't fit the king that we're looking for, the king that we need, the king that we want. You're not supposed to suffer or be rejected. True kings are supposed to take what they want, to display power, showing themselves through their victory to be the rightful true king. A king would never suffer, would never experience rejection like this. When you think of a king, what comes to mind? When I was five years old, the cinematic classic masterpiece, uh, The Lion King, was in theaters. And on our family's trip to Tallahassee, we put the little cassette, that's something that played music, we put it in the player, the soundtrack, and we listened to it over and over again. By the time we got to Tallahassee, I had every song memorized. And never wanted to shy away from attention, I put on a show for my extended family. And my go-to piece from then until now was the song Simba Sings, I Just Can't Wait to Be King. In that song, Simba says that when he's the king, no one will say, do this or do that. No one will say, stop that. No one will say, see here. He'll be free to do it all his own way. With four older siblings and some pretty strict parents, I long for the day when no one would say, do this or do that. When no one would say stop that, when no one would say see here, I wanted that power and that control. Isn't that what true riches, what true value looks like? True power. That's what we're conditioned to think in our world, in our family systems, and even sometimes in the church. That to make life good, we've got to be in control and we've got to get things our way. We've got to be able to do what we please when we please it. But Jesus rebukes it. Turning to Peter after looking at the crowd, he says, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You are not thinking about the king from God's point of view, but from man's point of view. You are not thinking about the good life from God's eternal perspective, but from your own perspective. You're not thinking about justice and mercy and grace and aligned with God's heart, but in your own subjective experiences. Quintessentially, what Peter is doing here is to say that victory and the good life does not have any room for suffering, but only to have the power to make things into our own image, into the way that we want them to be, to inflict our vision of the world onto others. A king would never suffer or sacrifice. What Peter says here is no different than what Satan tempts Jesus with in the wilderness. The opportunity for power and flourishing that is independent of suffering, that escapes suffering, that escapes being out of control and vulnerable. 
And what Jesus shows us here is that when we believe in a good life here in this place of sin and brokenness, and we don't account for suffering and we deny the need for sacrificial living, we're doing no less than partnering with the lies of the evil one. The accuser and the deceiver who tells us we can have it all without any cost to us. To see the world as one that is built and healed and transformed through power, through vengeance, through control, is to partner with the enemy. And to deny the eternal reality that Jesus came to put back into the world. I have a seminary education. I've been in the church my whole life. And now I'm finishing 12 years of ministry. But only until a few years ago did I start to understand how important it is that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What I learned some years ago is that before the world, before light, and even before darkness, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loved one another perfectly, sacrificing and surrendering to one another to pursue the will of the other, the happiness and joy of the other over themselves. And you can imagine when somebody is loving you perfectly, how easy it might be to then extend that love to someone else. You don't have to look out for yourself because they have your back. And when God creates the world, he doesn't do so out of scarcity or loss, but he does so out of the abundance of perfect sacrificial love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give to one another. And he created us to experience that love and that trust and that security and that peace. That's what we see in the garden, what we see in the first relationship between Adam and Eve, between Adam and Eve and God, to live and abide in that perfect relationship. And then the great temptation comes in. The temptation of Satan that says that God is not generous. He's not loving. He's not sacrificial. He's not trustworthy. He's holding out on you. And if you would just take matters into your own hands, then you can be free. I would submit to you that this is the dynamic of every human heart. Life is constantly beckoning us to submit and to surrender, to do so in trust, to give ourselves over to the demands that life has for us. And the temptation in our hearts is to reject those things, to turn away as if God is not on the throne. He is not to be trusted. But in order for the sacrificial eternal love of God to come back in, for that kingdom to come, Jesus had to suffer and give of himself. The way he was doing for all eternity to the Father and to the Holy Spirit, he has now come to do for us. There's something else that we need to notice about this when Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer, the King must suffer. Peter and the disciples thought that once Jesus is in power, our ship will come in. Like the Memphis Mafia that surrounded Elvis and and got to ride on his coattails and enjoy the good life. Peter and the disciples are just waiting. Once Jesus is in charge, then our lives will be set. When I was growing up, just uh, maybe 12 years old, uh, I didn't know that Elvis had died. I was devastated when I found out in 1999. (laughs) 
But I also didn't know that King David wasn't still the king over in Israel. So I thought Israel was just this amazing, perfect place that was like church all the time. And I thought, when I grow up, I'm going to go serve in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. And I'm going to go over there, and it's going to be amazing. And everybody's going to believe the same things, and I won't feel different. And it'll be like heaven on earth. And I also thought, because my middle name's David, maybe I could be next in line to the throne. (laughs) We all have these versions and ideas of what Jesus is like. I read the Bible and my Christian faith for a long time, seeing the good guys and the bad guys, just like every Western, just like Zorro, just like every, everything I loved. There's good guys and there's bad guys. And I'm on King David's team. That's the right team. That's how I read it. Until I got to about 13 years old, when I realized that my life looked more like the bad guys. My heart seemed more selfish. I was like a little king who only wanted to go my own way. No one, not even God, to tell me do this or do that. Free to do it all my way. What the disciples didn't understand is that if Jesus came into the world with the sword of justice to destroy everyone who was sinful, to destroy and restore uh, heaven on earth, that for him to do that, They weren't going to be on his side. But they too would have been God's enemies. Jesus doesn't come to bring that sword of judgment, but to take it into himself. To be pierced and take on the burden and the weight of sin and our sin as well. Not just those who commit evil in the world, not just the oppressors, but to pay the price for all of us. So that sinners like us can be healed and restored to his kingdom. The son of man must suffer a great many things, including rejection and death. And he has done that willingly for us. Hebrews 12 says that for the joy that was set before him, the joy of restoring sinful people to himself, of bringing eternal love and sacrifice back into the world, he was full of joy to face that suffering for us. Is this the kind of king you see Jesus to be? Do you see him and know him this way? And do you see him clearly? To follow a suffering king like Jesus means that we enter into a world Where if we're going to see more clearly and clearly, we've got to see his kingdom as a place that looks more like the king, the suffering king, than the kings of this earth. Jesus says to his disciples, to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, lose your life. Instead of being first, you must be last. This is the way of the kingdom of heaven. And if you live into this way, your experience of the life and promises of God will grow. God will grant these things to you. Your trust and joy in the kingdom will grow if we understand the kingdom that looks like this suffering king. I don't think that I could be a worse doctor's patient. Uh, I'm one who is prone to Google my way through my symptoms, Google my way through my treatment plan, decide exactly what I want, 
and then call as many doctors as it takes to get it. And oftentimes I've heard from doctors, here's the treatment plan, go ahead and do this, and then afterwards you gotta make these changes. And maybe you're like me, and once the meds are over and you're starting to feel better, you just go back to the old way of living. For us to see Jesus as a king, to accept his offer of salvation and deliverance and forgiveness of sins is one thing. But to see him clearly enough to want to give our lives over to him is another. We need that greater clarity and to see him more perfectly, to follow him into the kingdom in this way. But we cannot do it while maintaining ourself our sense of control, our sense of longing to have some things belong to Jesus, but the rest is all about me. Jesus gives his whole self to us. And the only proper response is to give our whole self to him more and more and more to the one who can heal and perfect it. Poet and playwright Oscar Wilde said, this idea of self-denial is the shining sore on the leprous body of Christianity. The idea of self-denial, humiliation, and suffering is not something that the world can account for. It doesn't match the kings and kingdoms of this earth. Why would you ever choose discomfort and sacrifice, these off-putting realities, when instead you can choose power, control, and vengeance? The kingdom of the earth and the kingdom of heaven aren't compatible with one another. There is one that is built on love and sacrifice and lovingly chooses suffering. But on this side of heaven with our sinful and broken nature and the sin and suffering we see around us, it is difficult to see clearly. Until we see the suffering king, the suffering savior, Only then can we enter into his kingdom more and more. The way of the cross of death and resurrection life, of suffering and new life, of denial and receiving a new identity in him. Pastor John Stott said, self-denial is not denying ourselves luxuries like candies, cakes, cigarettes, and cocktails, although it may include this, but rather self-denial is actually denying or disowning ourselves. Renouncing our supposed right to go our own way. Choosing not to be our own king or to follow the kings and powers of this world, not to enter into the kingdoms of the earth, but to choose the kingdom of heaven. Self-denial is disowning ourselves so that we can be fully owned and embraced by our suffering king. Friends, only the king who is willing to suffer for you is the one who can call you into suffering. Only the king who rides in the battle, leading the charge, who takes on the enemy full force is the one worth following. Only the one who gives you the benefits up front, who offers you grace and extends you life and promises before it makes demands. Only that is the king that we are made for. The suffering of self-denial is the paradigm of the Christian life. To call ourselves Christians and to see not only Jesus as our Savior, but as our King, and to allow His demands of His kingdom of heaven to be put on us 
can only come when we see this in Jesus. Jesus himself is submitting time and again to his suffering, saying he must suffer, and for joy he suffers. He surrenders his life and disowns himself, giving himself to the Father, saying that my daily bread is to do the will of my Father. That's what sustains me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when his life is being demanded of him, he denies himself and his own will, choosing instead, thy will be done. When he's nailed to the cross, rather than choosing vengeance and justice for the wrong that's done to him, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is what it means when Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And then the fullness of life and the healing of the gospel and the hope that God has brought to us in Jesus will be ours. Seek ye first the suffering king. The one who laid his life on the line for you. The one who at every point of tension between his will and the father's trusts and obeys the eternal sacrificial love and in choosing that suffering, chooses us. May we, like Jesus, partner. Partner to choose the suffering required for the eternal sacrificial love of God to break into this world in a kingdom that will never end. Leroy Jenkins! Let's pray. <laughs> God, we confess that like Peter and the disciples, we have all kinds of bad ideas about you. God, we do see, you've given us eyes to see that you are present and at work and you are good and you are trustworthy, uh, that you are full of hope and promises, that we can trust and follow your plan and your design. But God, we confess too that our hearts are stubborn, that we, like Simba, want to do it all our own way. We don't want to listen and hear, especially when you invite us into suffering, especially willingly. God, that seems like a discomfort and a disorientation that's just too much to bear. So we pray this morning as we celebrate you, King Jesus, that you would help us to see you not just a king in power, but in infinite power, through the sacrifice and grace of your infinite love. And God, may our hearts be so compelled by that image that we allow you to carry us away into places that we would rather not go, to face obstacles that we would rather not face, that we would proclaim your glory and enter into great joy. Would you help us, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to follow you more closely today, to see you more clearly, to trust in you more deeply for your infinite sacrificial love for us. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.